0: Hello and welcome to What The Heck, a show that looks at mysteries and the unexplained. Every week we look at something unexplained, telling a story or describing it, and then look at the theories surrounding it. I'm your host Glenn, and I can't give you the answers to these unexplained things, because I don't know what they are. I'm just here to give you the information to decide for yourself. All research is done as academically as I can, and references are given at the end of the episode. This week's episode is an unexplained phenomenon episode. We're looking at hypnosis and mesmerism. We've hit episode 100 of the podcast. We've covered 99 unsolved mysteries at this point and are about to do the 100th. A lot has changed since we started and I've grown as a podcaster since then the original seven episodes were recorded every single day a week in succession and i spoke really fast there was no editing whatsoever it was awful they've since been re-recorded and the original audio has been lost to time which is a good thing because they were bad but some of the previously unsolved mysteries have been solved since i covered them So, today, as part of the celebration of 100 episodes, I'm going to quickly update the stories in the order that I looked at them. We'll start with episode 33. This episode looked at the location of Cleopatra's tomb. We talked about how Kathleen Martinez felt that she was so close to finding the tomb that it was only a matter of time. In May 2023... News reports appeared around this mystery talking of an underground tunnel between Taposiris Magna the Temple Martinez had focused on, and this this tunnel could have led to a tomb. By June, people were beginning to question whether or not this tunnel was correct. In September, another article appeared in the mirror saying that the tomb had been found and will be uncovered. However, the exact location still remains unknown what has been found however is an ancient royal hall that dates back to ramses ii this mystery hasn't been completely solved yet but is much closer than what it was two years ago when i first covered it in the very next episode episode 34 i covered the Summerton man or the tamam should case this was about a mysterious man who was found dead on a beach in adelaide australia The mystery has lots of twists and turns, but ultimately ran dry. In July 2022, the 73-year-old mystery was finally solved. Professor Derek Abbott from the University of Adelaide said that he believed the man was Carl Charles Webb, a 43-year-old electrical engineer from Melbourne. He had done research with American genealogist Colleen Fitzpatrick. They analysed DNA evidence from hair that had been caught in the plaster cast made of the man's face, which I talked about during the episode. The DNA matched with something in the database, and they built a family tree out to find the man's identity. The tree had around 4,000 people in it. Carl Webb was born in 1905, but was later identified to have no death record. Abbott and Fitzpatrick went on to find out why he was in Adelaide, They discovered that he'd been separated from his wife who had moved to southern Australia. It's believed that Webb had gone there to try and find her. In episode 45, we looked at the Lady of the Dunes. This one revolved around a body on a beach near the filming of Jaws. After almost 50 years, a major breakthrough happened with the case. In October 2022, it was revealed the Lady of the Dunes was actually a woman called Ruth Marie Terry. She was from Tennessee and had been 37 when she died. Her identification came from investigative genealogy, which combines DNA analysis with traditional genealogy research and historical records to help find answers for unsolved and violent crimes. This research led to Richard Hanchett, who was Ruth's biological son, She had given birth to him when she was 22 in 1958, but had placed him with a co-worker who adopted him. He found out that Ruth was his biological mother around the same time that he found out that she was a murder victim. She had tried to reach out to him the year before she was murdered, but Richard wasn't ready yet. Her identification was a huge breakthrough that would lead to her killer. In August 2023, Ruth's killer was also found. Police confirmed that it was her husband, Guy Rockwell Muldivin. They were married in Reno, Nevada in 1974 and went to the Cape Islands for their honeymoon. Guy returned home saying that they had a fight and nobody heard from her again. The defence attorney's statement said that they had determined Guy to be the killer due to their investigation and closed the case guy died in 2002 and will never pay for his crime. Episode 46 looked at the boy in the box. This one saw the body of a boy being found in a cardboard box in Pennsylvania. Although people had come forward and suggested that they knew the boy's identity, nothing had been proven. In December 2022, the details of the case were made public. There had been an ongoing investigation using investigative genealogy to discover the boy's identity. Investigators managed to find his parents, Augustus Gus Zarelli and Mary Elizabeth Betsy Abel. Betsy died in 1991 and Gus in 2014, but their names had been kept secret out of respect for surviving relatives. Their names were eventually revealed in January 2023. Once again, Colleen Fitzpatrick had been the one to crack the case. The boy's name had been Joseph Augustus Zarelli. When asked, police said that they had suspicions of who killed Joseph, but wouldn't share them because the case was still ongoing. Colleen Fitzpatrick detailed her work in an interview with the Daily Mail, though stating that they had tried their unusual methods of extracting a genome sequence to run through their genealogy database, but that had failed. Her team were recommended a lab that handled ancient DNA. In other words, DNA that had been taken from mummies or other older bodies. In 2017, that lab managed to extract more DNA than they had been able to previously, leading to the massive breakthrough in 2021. I haven't had any of the mysteries I've covered solved later since that one. I'm grateful for everyone who listens, especially my brother, who sends me articles all the time about random mysteries he's found. He did send me something about a gimp in Somerset being charged with multiple crimes, but a little digging showed me that it wasn't the Claverham gimp from episode 59. It was just a really similar case from somewhere close by. Now that my major updates are done, Shall we look into hypnosis and mesmerism? This week, we're going on a bit of a history tour. Both hypnosis and mesmerism are very similar, dating back at least 5,000 years. So we'll start there. Hypnosis has a similar history to sleep, in that it's been used as a universal biological response. However, hypnosis has a therapeutic purpose as well. The use of hypnotic states as a healing practice has potentially been a part of all cultures throughout history. Some of the first recorded uses of hypnosis come from Egypt's Old Kingdom around 5,000 years ago. Even as late as the 3rd century BCE, the Temple of Imhotep in Saqqara near Cairo was an important healing centre that employed hypnosis. One of the notable practices in this temple was a tradition called temple sleep. Sick people would travel to the temple looking for a cure from the gods. After long rituals involving the ingestion of herbs and hours of reciting prayers to a rhythm, they were led to special darkened chambers to sleep. During this sleep, it was said that patients would have a dream that would reveal their cure. This practice eventually spread to Greece, where sleep temples were built to honour the god of healing, Aesculapius. People journeyed to the temple to go through the rituals to find their dream cure in the sleep chamber. This wasn't the only place where hypnotic states were used in Greece though. Oracles used them too. People visiting oracles would join them in chambers filled with candles and brightly painted images partake in herbal tea, and talk with the oracle. The entire process created a heightened suggestibility for the visitor, allowing for a profound emotional experience. The most famous oracle in ancient Greece was the oracle of Delphi. The job was continuously in use for over 1,000 years. The sibyl, or speaker, would hear the questions of the people, and open herself up to the answers from the god Apollo. Her reputation was so great that she was consulted by people from all levels of society. The Delphi Oracle's chamber was over a crack in the earth that emitted toxic fumes, potentially creating an even more intense experience for those inside. This important piece could have been the reason the sibyls were able to give such powerful proclamations. Even Alexander the Great consulted an oracle. He went to Egypt for this in the 4th century BCE, before his campaign against Persia. It's said that the oracle spoke favourably about the campaign, leading to Alexander going ahead with it. It just demonstrates the power the oracles had to change history, all with the use of hypnotic states. The practice fell into decline after the 1st century CE and the rise of Christianity. It wouldn't really be seen again until the 18th century. Dr Franz Mesmer, a physician in Vienna, Austria, was a believer in more esoteric aspects of Western medicine, including astronomy and magnets. During a magnetic treatment with a female patient in 1774, he felt that he noticed a fluid flowing through her that he could control with his own will. He eventually named this fluid and its manipulation animal magnetism, developing an elaborate theory in regard to its effects on health. Mesmer believed that people had a magnetic fluid that flowed through them, Blockages in the channels it passed through could cause emotional or physical disease. He thought that some people could have differing levels of innate animal magnetism, which meant that their ability to manipulate the flow of this fluid was variable. During this time, medical practice was still trying to differentiate itself from religious healing practices like exorcism. This meant that the medical breakthroughs of the time had to be different from the religious practices. They had to demonstrate that illness and disease weren't the result of bodily malfunction rather than the result of demons, evil spirits, or corruption of the soul. This meant that any medical explanations or theories had to show that there were mechanical explanations for things instead of relying solely on religious explanations. That's why Mesmer talked about a magnetic fluid that could be controlled by force of will it had to be completely separate from any kind of religious theories. Later on in the 1770s, Mesmer moved to Paris, France, and found more students interested in his theory than he had in Vienna. The process of animal magnetism, or as it's better known, Mesmerism, began to lay the foundations for the development of hypnosis later on. Working from home, He would welcome patients to perform his new medical procedure. His apartment would be dimly lit and there were mirrors everywhere. Mostly silent, only quiet music would float through the rooms. Patients would be seated in front of a vat of assorted chemicals. In a circle, patients would hold hands, be tied together or hold onto rods placed between them. Mesmer would move between them all, and affect them all by touch, looks, or even pointing. Each person would be affected differently, with a contemporary English doctor documenting hysteria, convulsions, catalepsy, heart palpitations, sweating, and other bodily disturbances. The method was supposed to provoke the right action that would help patients recover. To anyone who didn't know what Mesmer was doing, the whole thing would look very strange. It's possible that the tales of the practice are part exaggeration and part truth based on Mesmer's confidence and the skills he had. By the mid-1780s, Mesmer's procedures had drawn amazement and scrutiny across Paris, including the king, Louis XVI. Louis commissioned a panel of scientists to discover if animal magnetism was fact or fiction. The scientists Louis XVI called together were respected and joined medical doctors from the Royal Faculty of Medicine. After months of investigation, they discovered that Mesmer's theory wasn't true. There isn't a magnetic fluid that flows through people that could be controlled. The panel, including the inventor of the guillotine, an astronomer who studied the moons of Jupiter, and even Benjamin Franklin, said that the effects of Mesmer's treatments were due to the imagination of the patients and nothing more. Mesmer's reputation was ruined by the findings, and he returned to Vienna the following year, living the last 30 years of his life in obscurity. Although his practice was debunked within science, many people continued it well into the 19th century. They made their own unique changes, and some people performed mesmerism as part of a stage show. One of Mesmer's followers, the Marquis de Poisegger, took mesmerism in a direction that made it closer to our modern view of hypnotism. The Marquis was a lower nobleman in the French aristocracy and had a session with a peasant named Victor, which is widely believed to be the first use of mesmerism to improve the mental or physical health of a person. An English doctor recorded the session. He said that the patient was his agent's daughter who had a toothache. The Marquis mesmerised her and she said she was cured. A few days afterwards, Victor appeared saying he had fluid on his chest the marquis mesmerized him as well victor drifted into a tranquil sleep and began to talk he became sad and the marquis began to try and cheer victor up by humming a tune quietly victor picked up on this and began to sing back when victor woke up an hour later he was happier and his symptoms seemed to be getting better more practitioners began to appear, each with their own theories and procedures. Abbe Farrier was an early practitioner who wrote a book in 1819 called On the Cause of Lucid Sleep. He was the real-life basis of a character in The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandra Dumas. The real Abbe Farrier didn't die in prison, though. He survived his prison sentence and became fascinated with mesmerism. There was also a man in Chateau d'If prison who was born in a Portuguese colony near India in 1746. In his 40s, he was involved in an attempted revolt in India and fled to France during their revolution. Napoleon Bonaparte thought he was suspicious for making friends with revolutionaries and threw him in prison for nearly 20 years. When he was free, he made lengthy observations about mesmerism and called the mental process involved lucid sleep. A year later, Etienne de Coviers published the first literature that referred to hypnotism, calling practitioners hypnotists based on the Greek word for sleep. It wasn't until 1829 that the first recorded use of hypnotism for medicine happened. In this specific situation, Paris doctor Jules Cloquet works with a local mesmerist named Chapellein to perform surgery on a patient. Chapellein put her in a trance over the course of several days and would talk to her about the operation, attempting to relieve her of her fear. During the operation, the patient was mesmerised in lieu of anaesthetic and it's recorded that she appeared fine throughout. When asked why this wasn't practiced more often, Cloquet said that he couldn't dare to. Mesmerism was so hated across Paris that his reputation and income were on the line if he continued. This wasn't the only instance of mesmerism being kept secret. Lots of hypnotists kept their results quiet out of fear, meaning that there was a constant air of mystery surrounding mesmerism and hypnosis. In England... Professor John Eliotson devoted his time to exposing malpractice and quack medicine. He helped to found University College London in 1828 and attached a hospital later, quickly gaining fame among his peers. When French Baron Jules-Denis Dupoté provided Eliotson with mesmerism, Eliotson was obsessed. He took up the practice and the newspapers turned on him, calling him unsophisticated. It didn't stop him from being popular, though. People flocked to his performances. One notable audience member was a young domestic servant called Elizabeth Oakey, who suffered with epileptic fits. Eliotson mesmerised her and made her do all sorts of things to herself. He invited audience members to pinch her, pull her hair or stuff large amounts of snuff up her nose to prove that she couldn't feel any of it. During these activities, Elizabeth would stay motionless. She was usually timid, but while mesmerised, she would mock the audience, sing, whistle, dance and sometimes swear. Elliotson soon brought in Elizabeth's sister Jane to do the same to her and the pair of women became famous, but things didn't last. The Oki sisters began to take things too far as the hospital was inundated with audience members there to watch Eliotson's skills. Elizabeth and Jane claimed to be able to see through doors, diagnose patients and predict deaths, claiming to see Great Jackie next to the doomed patient. I can't seem to find anything on Great Jackie, but I'm assuming it's either the Devil or the Grim Reaper. Elizabeth and Jane's antics caused a rift between Elliotson and his friend and founder of The Lancet, Thomas Wakely. Wakely was initially a supporter, but became sceptical as Elliotson's experiments became more outlandish. Wakely thought he was being tricked, Elliotson's annual holiday came, and Wakeley took it upon himself to test the women. He quickly exposed them as frauds, saying that the effects of animal magnetism were actually part of a delusion. Elliotson had also created a rift between himself and one of the surgeons at the University College Hospital, Robert Liston. Liston was highly regarded and known for being able to perform the quickest amputation in town. However, that wasn't without complications. It's said that in a hurry to amputate a leg, he once removed the patient's left testicle as well. Both Elliotson and Liston were arrogant and a rivalry was inevitable. It intensified enough that the hospital was split between Team Elliotson and Team Liston at one point elliotson was prevented from treating his own patients and resigned from the hospital his reputation lulled for a short while before soaring again and soon he was in charge of the london mesmeric infirmary opening in 1850. in 1843 scottish doctor james baird proposed changing the term mesmerism and making it hypnosis today The two terms are synonyms, and mean roughly the same thing. Hypnosis is viewed as a waking state of consciousness in which a person's attention is detached from their immediate environment and is absorbed by inner experiences such as feelings, cognition and imagery. To get there, someone must focus on attention and imaginative involvement to the point where what is being imagined feels real. Using suggestion, a clinician can help the patient to construct a hypnotic reality that extends past waking. Now, trance states are part of everyday life. Have you ever read a book and gotten lost in it so much that outside stimulus doesn't get noticed? That's a trance state. People do it when driving down familiar roads too. Prayer and meditation can also cause these states. Conscious awareness of surroundings and inner awareness is on a continuum, so although we may seem like we're oblivious in these states, we are still aware of the outside world. It's just that the focus is on our internal awareness. In the modern world, we can get hypnotherapy. Hypnosis itself is not a therapy alone. It just allows us to be more receptive of suggestions. It can't perform miracles, but it helps to facilitate change by allowing patients to believe and experience the possibilities. As we've seen, hypnotic states have been used for thousands of years as a healing practice. However, during Eliotson's foray into mesmerism, we saw that hypnosis can be misused for entertainment purposes. This leads to the portrayal of hypnosis in media as something purely magical and mysterious, when it isn't really. People such as Darren Brown use their skills of hypnosis to create social experiments that showcase the power of hypnosis. However, shows like this depict hypnosis as out of the control of the participant, which isn't strictly true. Even with a more in-depth knowledge of it, many health professionals distrust it and view it with scepticism. Recent advances in neuroscience have helped us to understand what could be happening during a hypnotic state though. Evidence from it is beginning to build, pointing to it being a useful tool to help many conditions like anxiety and pain. Some people have even looked at this research, saying that the study of hypnosis is complex with many factors contributing as extraneous variables in how effective it is. Context, expectation, and personality can all affect hypnotic response and the suggestions used. On top of that, cognitively knowing something doesn't translate into being able to action it. For example, knowing about fear doesn't allow you to control it. That's why clinical hypnotists use words that evoke imagery as well, allowing patients to experience the change. Going back to neuroscience, brain imaging studies have been used to help discover what happens to the brain when someone's hypnotised. The activity in the brain that helps people to switch tasks seems to quieten down. It also disconnects from a different region, the one responsible for self-reflection and daydreaming. This may be why people who are hypnotised aren't worried about who they are or what they're doing. It's also been found that hypnosis calms the regions of the brain in control of automatic things like heart rate, blood flow, and even breathing. This calming is potentially the reason why people under hypnosis get so relaxed. Modern hypnosis has returned to the operating room as well. During localised breast cancer surgeries, patients at some hospitals in the US are allowed to choose between general anaesthesia, localised anaesthesia or hypnotherapy. This is called hypnosedation now, but we already saw it used once before in history. More than 30 clinical trials have affirmed the use of this technique allegedly. Studies have shown that patients who receive hypnosedation experienced less preoperative anxiety, required less pain medication, and reported less pain intensity after the procedure. They also experienced less nausea, fatigue, and discomfort after the operation. The hypothesis is that the hypnosis prevents the fight or flight response of a stressful situation from activating. This can still happen under general anaesthetic, but hypnotherapy seems to prevent it. However, modern hypnosis in the medical field doesn't come without scepticism. Randomised control trials have found that hypnosis can help with pain, anxiety, and a range of other medical conditions. But they don't hold up in a double-blind design. In a usual double blind, neither the participants nor the experimenters know what the participants are receiving. It's very difficult to achieve this with hypnosis, since it doesn't seem to work if someone doesn't know that they're being hypnotised. On top of that, hypnosis hasn't been used responsibly throughout history. It's been used to humiliate people, and even to create false memories. At least 27 states in the US have banned hypnotically elicited testimony from courtrooms. It's also suggested that hypnotherapists don't use the technique to recover memories. There aren't any theories this episode, because I've put all of the information in the same place. It's difficult to separate things in this situation as well. We know hypnosis works, but we don't know why, and we don't know the full effects of it. There aren't many theories surrounding that, but as we learn more through neuroscience, I'm sure we'll begin to understand it more. The updates to previous episodes a News AU article, a Guardian article, and a Mirror article. The history from this episode came from the Encyclopedia website, hypnosis.edu, a History Today article, a National Library of Medicine article, and a Time article. References and links are posted on social media if you want to look on it. The link tree is available in the episode description, so you can go to your preferred social media or listen on your website. Patreon is still unchanged with a free tier if you want to support me, but I have nothing to put on there yet. Suggestions, personal stories and corrections can be sent through the email in the episode description too. This week's creature feature releases on Saturday, and next week's episode releases on Wednesday, so hold on until then.